Observations was a reading and writing group run with first and second year students on the MA in Visual Communication at the Royal College of Art and led by me, Hannah Ellis. You're about to hear pieces read by the group, written in response to Uxbridge Road. Chicken Cottage, written and read by Barbara Müller. Three round faces pressed into a frame of white, one wall above, one wall below, white disrupted by beige, one colour pressed into four shapes, circles, unfilled circles, half circles, rings and lines, the menu, all shapes served in squares, plastic pressed into strips, squares, one square comes down, all shapes served on but also wedges inside squares, styrofoam pressed into squares, one colour pressed into strips and rings. One texture pressed into strips, strips and rings. Strips, grains pressed into squares. Paper pressed into puppers, squares. A plastic square is placed on puppers, top of wooden square. A round bottom is sitting on a wooden circle. A circle pressed onto a nuggets, pole. A pole pressed to the floor. The nuggets, floor, pressed to the nuggets, ground. Chicken Cottage, 162 Oxbridge Road, London, W12, 8AA, 7th of December 2017, 1.45 to 2.22. Potato strips, onion rings and four packages of salt. Oxbridge Road, written by Rachel Davey, read by Hannah Ellis. The sharp, warm winter light feels as if it's trying to make the most out of only being in existence for a few short hours. Stretching its long, low beams over the icy rooftops of the shops below, intermittently blinding me as I walk. Nestled in between a laundrette and a closed Chinese takeaway, I notice a party shop. Completely charming in its innate tackiness, the pull is too much for me to resist, and I find myself crossing the road, full of curiosity. Two identically plump and surly ginger cats lounge either side of the doorway, acting as apathetic protectors of the party products that lie within. This image jolts my memory, reminding me of two floral porcelain cats my grandparents used to have either side of the electric fireplace in their caravan. I pass the feline threshold to be instantly greeted by plastics of all colours, shapes and sizes. I automatically feel happy and comfortable. I spend time gleefully perusing the flamingo candles, pineapple balloons, multicoloured glitter confetti and cut glass Disney characters. After a while browsing, I take a happy birthday banner up to the counter. Hello, am I okay to pay on card, I ask. If it's over £5, yeah, the owner replies. Okay, cool. Mm, do you know where there's a cash point nearby? He points me in the direction and I return in five minutes, cash in hand. I'm back. Oh, great. Uh, sorry about that. It's just the rules. Hey, no worries. It's fine. It's the banks. They want to monitor everything, keeping track of you on their computers. It's no good for us small businesses. They try to control everything. It's capitalism. They take the information and use it against you. Supermarkets sell everything nowadays. It's really hard for places like us. My empathic nature jumps into action and I nod slowly in agreement. I really like shops like this, I reply, trying to be positive. Yeah, but my shop will soon be an antique, he responds. 
The realisation that I know nothing much about the effects of capitalism on local businesses leaves me stuck for words. And in that moment, I wish I were better educated. I tell him that I think his shop is great, and in my mind, I know I mean it. He responds by smiling and giving me a brochure of fancy dress costumes to take away. I say thank you, goodbye, and turn to leave. Passing the sullen cats again on the way out, I think again about the porcelain cats beside the fireplace. I really hope these two don't become antiques. Uxbridge Road, Shepherd's Bush, written and read by Bexlew. This 16-minute walk, 0.8-mile stretch of road somehow resembles everything and yet nothing of what I know to be London. Rows of white townhouses, blocks of flats, maybe from the 30s, and obscure brick buildings are interspersed with fluorescent shop signs and steamy, vignetted windows of restaurants. I miss the names, but I find myself taking note of the different cuisines. Yemeni, Ethiopian, Eritrean, Lebanese, Turkish, Napoli, Polish, Thai, Damascene. One sign, gold on burgundy red, the A's resemble minuets, next to chicken shop, red and blue on neon white, reflected in an iridescent rainbow oil slick on black tarmac. I psych myself up to open the door, to walk inside, but instead I mechanically keep walking. This happens again and again and again until I'm staring at the empty shell of the new Shepherd's Bush Market, sandwiched between two buildings. It occurs to me as I turn back, determined to step inside a restaurant, a shop, anything, that perhaps what intimidated me most wasn't the sense of unfamiliarity, wasn't the sense of, wasn't the time of night, or the quietness of the street, but the odd sense that I would be intruding on something. As time passes, details emerge, and I begin to remember restaurants busy with gatherings, almost entirely of men and seemingly of the same culture. Some are in casual cafes with bright yellow lights and others are in restaurants with darkened windows and glowing decorative lamps. I imagine walking in. Would it be weird? Would people notice? Would I be intruding? I'm curious about the different communities, about why they only seem to be male, but I'm reluctant to make assumptions and at the same time too intimidated to go inside. Eventually, I go inside a Damascene restaurant. I order the first thing I recognise on the menu and immediately regret my decision. I make small talk and I'm offered juice. The restaurant decor looks like a cross between Mediterranean and Italian, with fake stone walls and murals in ambers and reds. I notice that this restaurant has the most diverse customers I've noticed on this road, with people of different ages, genders and races. I think of that saying people have about how to tell a cultural restaurant is good, that if lots of people of that culture are eating there, then you can trust it, and I question myself why I chose this restaurant over the others. Evidence for anomalous retroactive influence on cognition and effect. Infinite moments within any time. Written by Laura Copsey. Read by Laura Gordon. I sat on the marbled plastic church pew bench in Uxbridge Road laundrette and started to listen to a podcast entitled The Unexplained Time Out of Joint. Outside, it's a beautiful cold winter's day. The sky is crisp, bright blue, and I feel tired. It's 11am. Before pressing play, I remember I was thinking about the future. But looking around, I wondered if I had slipped into the past. The iconic typography of the laundrette the 1970s orange oversized washing machines and a classic rock and roll radio tune in the background had an uncanny quality I hoped would have strange moments of clash. 
The warm drone of the tumble dryer cycle surrounded me, and I worried that when complete it would usher in a deafening silence. Laundrettes and white noise. This would be a good place for a studio, I laughed to myself, catching the eye of the lady opposite who returns my smile warmly. The voice in my headphones begins to talk. He has a slow, calm voice that adds to my weariness. Time is a strange motion, he says with authority, almost spherical in shape. Like the drum of a washing machine in the fastest phase of the spin cycle, I add. We move within time. I sway from side to side, feeling nostalgic for each movement. The stubborn illusion of the past, present and future disorientates us. Time is not an illusion, but the flow of time is. I realise I'm ignorantly challenging Einstein. Hey, hey, set me free, stupid Cupid, stop picking on me. Pitch black on the moors, she heads home, choosing the longer road for greater visibility, having missed the last ride. The woman hears muffled voices in the distance and bright torches of burning red flame approach her. Ghostly figures come into view, skirting around the edge of something no longer present in the landscape, screaming like barbarians. The woman faints. Hi, I want to put my quilt in, she says in the present. Name? Shirley. Dream. Dream, 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 dream. Dream, dream, dream. When I need you, in the night, when I feel blue. I'll hold you tight whenever I want you, all I have to do is dream. She will be Shirley into the future. She reads the instructions. Please ensure you have the correct coinage. Press C for cancel, press S for start. The quilt spins around the machine like a ghost. An older lady looks over. There is a pile of odd socks on the side. Many people have phobias of odd socks or lost buttons, but Shirley is in her element searching for matching pairs. The red embers were ancient fir fronds glowing in a distance reflected in the lake. Misremembering the past, the smell of cleanliness in the present, time out of sync. Evidence for anomalous retroactive influence on cognition and effect. Will you still love me tomorrow? Shepherd's Bush Station, Uxbridge Road. Written and read by Penny Gent. Broke Britain, millions on the breadline, Brexit crisis. Rough paper in cold hands, burnt coffee sitting poorly in mouth and stomach. Been waiting ages, we need to get a move on. There's someone in the toilet, Nick, don't rush me all right. Goodbye waiting woman, goodbye Nick. Cold steel handling cold hands, burnt coffee sitting poorly in stomach, constant rough roar of cars go by. Zetan Zatar, special homemade food. Two people get off the 21, heels clacking on the pavement, half-empty red wine bottle in her hands, laughter on his flush face. And then he said, and then I said, and then I was like, and she was like. Isn't it funny to think of being that age, you say? Isn't it funny to think we aren't that much older, though, really, I say? Cold feet and cold shoes kick a cold Coke can. Christmas Concert for Peace, December 21st. Boris Purushottama Grabinskikov, Sloan St. Holy Trinity Church. He's all shining and regal and red and gold. Never heard of him, you say. Neither have I, I say. Goodbye, Boris Poroshotomogravinskikov poster. Goodbye, wine kids. Constant rough roar of cars continue. Van unloading boxes and boxes of fruit cellophane. Wrapped in teetering towers, a gap-toothed man ushers us past. Shepherd's Bush Market Station. Dave was here. Well, I'll see you, you say. I'll see you, I say. Cold hands go in cold pockets. Burnt coffee sits better in stomach. Goodbye, you. Uxbridge Road, written by Rebecca Cottrell, read by Hannah Ellis. Uxbridge Road runs from Shepherd's Bush in the approximate direction of Wormwood Scrubs Park, 
and its sense of identity and personality is tangible. Small independent delis, restaurants and charity shops are sandwiched between high street chains like Costa and McDonald's. The pavement bustles energetically, with people going about their day amidst red buses trundling down the road by a small green. I passed the Chop Chop Noodle Bar, a Thai buffet, a casino called Casino, and a number of high street chain shops. Drawing my attention, though, is a window display with an unidentified mound of fried pastries, cakes and shisha pipes, and I feel compelled to go in. An old man is in the queue. He has his back to me and is looking towards the other side of the room, and there's no shopkeeper at the till. I ask him if he's been there before, and is there anything particular I should order? He has, many times before, and he usually comes here for a savoury dish. Everything in the shop is handmade, and it's all good, he says. I absolutely must try the lemon cake, he advises. A male shopkeeper emerges. I ask what the baklava is made with. Vegetable oil. I admire the pates and choose a variety to buy. It's served up in a white paper bag with a white plastic fork. The baklava itself is bright green, packaged in crispy phyllo pastry, and looks satisfyingly greasy. The male shopkeeper, encouraged by my interest in how the baklava is made, seems to want me to try it right there, right now. I oblige, awkwardly cutting a piece off with a plastic fork and putting it into my mouth. It's fine, though I'm overwhelmingly aware of the taste of vegetable oil since we just discussed it. The shopkeeper looks expectantly at me, so I say it's delicious. I sit down with the remains of my baklava. Christmas tinsel hangs from the ceiling. Rows of French patisserie glisten behind the glass screen. Outside the shop is a sign for a halal English breakfast. The shelves behind the till support tall vases filled with flaked flowers. The cafe serves Italian coffee. The menu includes a chai latte and a virgin mojito. I tell the shopkeeper I'm studying art down the road. He looks excited at this news and begins to show me photos on his phone of what looks like brightly coloured, elaborate 3D models of Disney characters. I'm confused, but by the fifth photo, I realise the photos are a cake he made. He says that should I ever be in need of a birthday cake, I should get in touch with him. He asks if I'm a local. No, I say I live in Clapham. But it's so far away, he says. He can find me a place nearby for £300 cheaper a month. Let me show you something, he says. It crosses my mind he might be taking me to a room or a flat he's letting. But he goes to the front of the shop, takes a leaflet and hands it to me. It's for a letting agent. He's also a landlord. I thank him and say I'll keep him in mind if I need a Disney birthday cake or a West London flat. He says I should order some coffee with the back of it next time I visit. I leave the shop bemused and with an odd sense of gratitude for the generosity of strangers. Donkeys and Window Reflections Written by Anna Carolina Read by Laura Gordon Uxbridge Road Brown, identical Victorian-style houses sitting side by side. I wonder how it would be to live in one of those houses. I've never lived in West London or on a busy street like this. 
The residential houses gradually turn into offices, post offices and nail salons, and I can sense that I'm approaching Shepherd's Bush. There, in the midst of chicken shops, I see a Middle Eastern restaurant. There's something deeply comforting about them. They always remind me of my trip to Jordan. I remember one particularly hot day when a local man came up to me and offered to take me to the top of a nearby mountain with his donkey. The donkey was wearing a colourful leather saddle and had long lashes. I told him I didn't have any money, but he still wanted me to hop on the saddle. I remember the determined clip-clop of her little hooves echoing off the walls of the mountain. The rocks on the path were rolling, moving and grinding against each other, sometimes sliding over the edge of the path. If I looked down, I could see straight into the mouth of the deep, steep gorge, but I wasn't even scared. The donkey clearly knew what she was doing. The restaurant is empty. I'm wondering if it would be awkward to sit here alone. I never go to restaurants alone. For some reason, I'm thinking of that man in Edward Hopper's painting, sitting all alone inside those glass walls, a visual metaphor for urban alienation. The staff are speaking loudly in a foreign language. It sounds like they're joking. It's obvious they're not laughing at me, yet I still feel embarrassingly self-conscious and uncomfortable. What's wrong with me? I decide to eat here as it's not dark outside. Even if someone would notice me sitting there all by myself, they would have to press their face against the window in order to see me properly. The light reflecting off the window will turn me into a blurred, mysterious figure behind the glass. Score. I sit down and order a falafel. The waiter isn't smiling anymore. I guess the joke is over. The light pouring in through the big windows is cold, but the restaurant's stone walls make me think of all the cosy nights spent in front of our fireplace. Warmth. I feel more relaxed and my thoughts travel back to mountains and donkeys again. The Ballad of Scooby, written and read by Tanea Steed. I remember watching morning TV with a very sad relation of mine, years ago. A group of school kids came on to sing a Christmas song, and he just couldn't sit through it. He had to look away. I can't handle hearing kids sing like that, he said. It just makes me feel so sad, I don't know why. I didn't know why either. It was the same confusion I used to feel when grown-ups would cry from happiness if they got given a nice gift, like an engraved locket or an ornate urn for the dead dog's ashes. Happy Tears was so far away from anything I could imagine that it made me feel uncomfortable when I saw it for real. It was too hard to get my head around, like trying to imagine a new colour. I just couldn't sit through it. I had to look away. Walking down Uxbridge Road today, I got one my temporary lodger couldn't bear to watch the singing pupils on the TV screen. It was pouring down with rain and there were lines of kids walking at roughly 100 miles an hour in puffer coats and woolly hats. I could tell from their unnaturally sensible shoes that underneath industrial jackets they were in their school uniforms, free from another day of forever sums and playground tribute acts. Rows of small gloved hands rushed past me to escape the rain, followed by clear dome prams imprisoning at least a dozen babies and four teddy bears. Straight to jail for you, Mr Snuggles. We've got homework to get back for. Seeing the school kids unleashed from school and out in a busy world of neck-covered Christmas trees and shockingly lightweight tinsel made me weirdly sad. They looked so free and everything around them was so big and shiny and promising so much. It's the same thing that can make even me, an out and proud Christmas lover, feel down about the festive season. Realising I was in grave danger of morphing into the unhappy man who sat on my sofa all those years ago, I made a run for a rest stop, naturally drawn in my sudden mourning for the kid I used to be, but the icing drawn face of Scooby-Doo. Scooby sat pride of place in the shop window of a Turkish bakery come custom cake shop, keeping an eye on the wedding cakes and candy glazed love hearts in case they took off their disguises. I spoke to the man in the shop immediately. Did you make that cake? I said, with childlike excitement, pointing at Scooby. The noticeably long-lashed man behind the counter lit up at my enthusiasm. 
he began talking me through the cakes in a way that reminded me of how people like to talk about their tattoos. Once he ran out of cakes in the shop, he went through his phone pictures. This is Freddie Mercury wearing a crown. This lady has a ship in her hair because the couple who wanted it met on a cruise. I can't tell you I make them. I'd have to kill you. We can make anything you want. Anything. We've been making these cakes here for nine years. Nobody does what we do. It struck me that the real difference between cake art and tattoo art was that tattoos are there to the end where cakes are demolished in minutes. I couldn't decide which was braver. Before I know it, I'm telling him about a friend whose birthday is coming up. A male friend? Yes, a male friend. The body? He exclaims. In my head, I'm imagining a life-size cake to match my friend's body. We are super excited, like two kids in a, a cake shop. He flips his phone out and shows me an iced torso he made just a few weeks ago. It's not quite what I was hoping for, but hell, I'm invested now. I went to the cake shop to escape my cynical thoughts about the false promises of childhood. But I left having been sweet-talked into ordering a custom-made cake of my friend's torso that I wasn't sure I really wanted. And I would have got away with it too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. <laughs>